Good morning. Open your Bibles and turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this morning we'll be continuing on with the book of Corinthians as we began the introduction last week. Um, and let's do just a slight recap of what we talked about and some of the settings. So 1 Corinthians starts off, um, we look at the state of concerns. A little bit of uh, background is that the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, um, and uh, we, we see that in Acts 18, that Paul came to Corinth and taught the gospel to them. And now Paul is writing a letter to them. After he's been with them for a year and a half, he's writing a letter back to them uh, from Ephesus. And so we learned that he came and stayed in Corinth and he preached the gospel for a year and a half and he saw many souls saved. But the area that the Corinthians were in, the city of Corinth was not a great city. It was very corrupt and it was a port city and there was many ships that passed through it or they came to the port, they dragged them across the land because it was a shortcut to the other side. But because of that, that brought in a lot of corruption, a lot of immorality. And so these believers were in the midst of a city that was immoral, it was corrupt. And Paul actually mentioned some of the sins that were part of the Corinthians. Um, some of the character, city's characteristic sins. In 1 Corinthians 6 it says this, that do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So some of these sins were the former lifestyles of these believers. And so that's what they are in the midst of right now, is other unbelievers who are practicing this lifestyle, but they were people who came from that lifestyle. And it's encouraging to know that God loved the people at Corinth. He told Paul as he was there, he said, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. Even in such a wicked city as such as Corinth, God loved them so much that he died for them and that he wanted the gospel to go out to them. Even in cities around us, San Francisco or Oakland or Hayward or Fremont, there are people in the city that God wants us to reach. Even in cities that we might deem ourselves as hopeless, this city is hopeless, God wants to save us. God wants to save men and women from all nations, all places. Because it says in 1 Timothy 2.4, it says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we learned last week in the first three verses that as he was writing, beginning the introduction, he called them saints. He called them saints. It is their new position in Christ. Usually when we hear the word saint, you think of somebody who is dead and gone and the, uh, who has been uh, a great angelic figure, figure that's been canonized by the Catholic Church. 
But that's not the definition of a saint. A saint is someone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you've done that this morning, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are a saint this morning. And you're not, you're alive, you're not dead as a, as a, as a uh, to try to define it today, they're living saints. And that is our, that is our position. So let's, let's take a look at the uh, section today. We're going to go through uh, verses 4 through 9 in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gifts. eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the first words he says in chapter and verse 4, I thank my God always. I thank my God always. Paul was thankful always for the Corinthians. And for what God had done and was doing in their lives. But if you were to look at the believers in Corinth, if you look at their lives and what the rest of the book of Corinthians is about, they were not, um, it didn't look like there was a lot to be thankful for. There was immorality. There was division. There was sin. There was brothers and sisters going to court against each other. There was um, extreme misuse of the gifts that God had given them. But Paul starts off by saying, I thank my God always for you. And that's something that we can learn from Paul, is that he can be thankful for the work of God in their lives. And Paul is thankful. If you look at what we, we're, the three verses, or a couple of verses we're going to look at, is that Paul is thankful for his past, for their past, what God has done in their past. He's thankful for the present, what God is doing in their present, and he's also thankful for their future what God will do for them. And many of the letters to the churches that Paul wrote are actually filled with thanks for the believers. Romans 8, 1, or 1, 8 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. Without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Philippians, he says that I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. And in Colossians, he writes the believers there saying, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you, praying always for you. In 1 Thessalonians, the first book, he wrote, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And in the second book, he wrote, we, give, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. And then in 2 Thessalonians, again he says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We can learn a lot from Paul and his attitude. How often are you thankful for the fellow believers in the midst here? Is it just some of the time? Is it maybe none of the time? Paul was thankful how often? Always. He was thankful always. Isn't that incredible? 
Paul continually gave thanks to the Lord for these believers. He constantly was remembering them and thanking God for them. Are we thankful? And in the midst of a church who, is, who are not steering the right way, Paul still found things to be thankful for to God. And in this, in this section, we have, I found at least six things that Paul can give God thanks for. Six things that he can praise God for the Corinthian believers. The first one is that God, he, he praises God for God's grace to the Corinthians. Because Paul realizes this thing. He realized that God had done something in their lives. If you stop and think, it's incredible that God has shown you grace. It says that in verse, verse 4, it says that, that he thanks God concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. The grace of God given to you. It's remarkable that each one of you here is nothing short of a miracle of God. God is, it's remarkable that God has saved you. It's astounding that he has rescued you from the punishment of eternity in hell. Instead, God has made you his own. In John 1, 12, it says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. That's the grace of God that was given to you. It's the moment that we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's the, the day that you trusted in Christ. That's the grace of God that was given to you. And so Paul is thanking God for saving them. He's thanking God for saving them. But what is God's grace? What is God's grace to us? It's God's favor towards those who don't deserve it. We don't deserve his favor because we were, sinner, we were sinners and we were enemies of God. And we were sinners, des, sinners destined for hell. But yet God saw your helpless estate. He saw that you were sinners. He saw that you were lost. And he had compassion. And he had grace towards you. Undeserved favor. And he had love towards the unlovable. So God sent his son Jesus Christ to the earth to die on, your, on the cross in your place. This is the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is thankful for. God saved them. We should also be thankful for each one of the God's work in each one of your lives. That if you're here today and you've trusted Christ, that we can be thankful to God for the grace that was given to you. That I can be thankful for the grace given to Matt, the grace given to Michael, and to Renee, and to Jen, and to Rose, and to Marion, and Kathy, and to Beth, and to everyone here who's trusted in Christ this morning, who's, who believes in him. We can thank God for what he's done for you. Secondly, Paul th gives thanks that the Corinthians were enriched. They were wealthy. It says in verse 5 that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. There's three things that they were wealthy in. They were enriched in all things, in everything by him. Secondly, they were enriched in all utterance. And third, in all knowledge. So if these believers were enriched in everything, they were enriched in all knowledge and all wisdom, what did they lack? They lacked nothing. 
There wasn't anything they lacked from God. They had everything they needed. They were given everything first. They were, uh, Ephesians talks about um, the riches in Christ that we receive from him. It says in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then later on it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We've been given everything, all spiritual blessings that have been, have been bestowed to us. Secondly, they were enriched in all utterance. God gave them the ability to speak forth the word. They didn't lack any ability to, to, to speak the truth of God to others. And, they, and, the, and specifically, the Corinthians were given the ability to speak in tongues. That means they could speak a language that they never learned. God gave them incredible gifts that they could use for him. Thirdly, they were enriched in all knowledge. They had everything they needed to know, everything they needed to understand to, to share the gospel with others. If you were to look at these Corinthians, they were well equipped. They had everything they needed. They had all the tools they needed, and as believers, we also have everything we need. God gives us everything that we need. We're not lacking anything. The Corinthians were not, but the problem was with the Corinthians, they were not using the tools that God had given them properly. I can be richly blessed with the gifts. I can have all spiritual blessings, but I cannot use it effectively. So two years ago, I received a gift from my dad for Christmas. And um, he got me this uh, thing right here. He got me a tool set. And it was, a, it was a really nice gift because I never had anything like this. It has a whole bunch of parts. Um, let's see what's inside it. So I've got a you know, tape measure. Hammer. Jake, help me out if I name these things wrong. <laughs> Some screwdrivers. I got screwdrivers more than I know what to do with. Uh, different parts. <laughs> um, so there, there's a whole bunch of tools in here that I never had before. But if I took these tools and just left them over here in my closet and just let them alone, how good is that gift? <laughs> Good. But during the last two years, I had things that broke down, that fell apart. I had, you know, batteries that needed to be changed and toys, not just Justin's toys, my toys too. And they, I had to use the tools that were given to me. I had to take them out and actually use them. But if they sit in the closet back there and don't get used, and I don't know even what I have as tools, how can I learn how to use them better? And so the more, the more times that I take these tools out and I use them on uh, opening things up or building things, um, I get more um, accustomed to them. I understand how to use them better. I become more effective in them. And it's very similar in a spiritual sense that God has richly blessed you with tools. You have all the tools that you need to do what God has called you to do. By his grace, he has supplied you with everything you need and given you tools at your disposal. But you can't leave them on the shelf. 
And we have been given everything, we have been given them for a reason, so we must take them out and use them. And this is a truth that we must not overlook, that God has given us all the spiritual resources that we need so that we can be who he has called us to be and to grow in serving him. Thirdly, Paul thanks the Lord for what he has done for them. In verse 6 it says, Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Paul is thankful for the evidence of God in their lives. He sees the evidence of God working in their lives currently. That when Paul went to, Paul went to Corinth and he preached the gospel, he saw that when they heard the truth, that they believed the truth, that they were saved, and after they trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ, God gave them gifts which confirmed that they were saved. It was proof that they had truly believed. The fact that gifts were bestowed upon them proved that they had truly come to Christ. And so Paul is thankful that Christ was confirmed in them. Fourthly, he is thankful for them being complete. Verse uh, verse 7, it says, so that, you know, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the Corinthians had an abundance. They had all the, they had all the gifts they needed. They had all the, the tools they needed to do what God has called them to do. And they were also, it was also said that they came short in no gift. He had supplied them, God had supplied them richly, abundantly with spiritual gifts. Gifts that were, um, that they had so much of them that they didn't have any lack of gifts. There was an abundance. And it's, a, it's an interesting truth to, to realize, to, to, to contemplate that as a believer, each one of you here is complete. We're complete in Christ. It says that in Colossians 2.10, it says, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Christ has made us complete. And in 2 Peter 1.3, uh, it says that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So if the Corinthians had everything that they needed, and they had abundance of spiritual gifts, what could possibly be wrong with them? They had all the spiritual blessings and gifts from God, but they themselves were not very spiritual. The Corinthians were carnal. They were misusing the gifts. They were envious and they were causing factions and suing other believers and taking them to court. But Paul is thankful for what God has done to the Corinthians, for what God is currently giving them. And God has given them everything they need. But it's essential to realize that you must use what God has given you. We can't just leave it over here. I have to use it to take it and use it. And in Romans 12, 4 through 8, it talks about spiritual gifts. It says in uh, verse 4, it says, for as, as, for, as, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. 
He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The key here, I think, is where Paul says, let us use them. We have gifts, but we have to use them. We can't just you know, keep them to ourselves. We have to use them. There's action words here. You see that there is, it says, if you have the gift of ministering, then you need to minister. If you have, if you have a gift of teaching, then in teaching, um, we must use those gifts that God has given us. Now, let's say you, you're like, I don't know what my gifts are. How can I use them if I don't know what the gifts that God has given me? Well, God has called each one of us to serve him. And so we can, we can see how God has gifted us in the way that we, when we go and serve him. So that's one way we can learn what our gifts are, by going out and serving the Lord in different areas, various different ways to seeing how God gifts us. Secondly, you can ask a brother or sister and ask them, how do you see, or where do you, what gift do you see in me? Um, because sometimes you don't see the gift yourself, but others can see it clearly. And so ask somebody else, and then have them challenge you to use it this week. And thirdly, you can also pray and ask the Lord to, to show you what your gift is, to, to ask the gift giver himself what gift he's given you, or gifts he's given you. And then pray that he would show you how you can clearly use it for his glory. Okay, fifthly, the fifth thing that Paul thanks the Lord for, for these believers, that they were eagerly waiting. It says that in verse 7, so that you come short of no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians were wa- eagerly waiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their hearts were so oriented with anxiousness and expectation to see their Savior face to face that they were waiting for him. Can this be said of me? Am I waiting eagerly for the Lord and waiting for his return to rapture us home into heaven? Am I waiting for that? As I was thinking of that, it's, it's so easy to become distracted and, and um, narrow-minded and thinking only about the present day, only thinking about where we are right now, and, and we can be distracted by the cares of this life. And we can focus so much of our time and energy in the present that we forget about the future. How can we eagerly wait like these Corinthians did? Well, it isn't that you're just sitting around doing nothing, hoping and waiting and staring up to the sky waiting for him to come. It is that we should be waiting eagerly by doing, um, by working and uh, serving the Lord. We should live in a way that shows that we're looking forward to his coming back, that we, we want him to come back. Are we ready for Christ's return? Are we wanting him to come back tomorrow? Or would that fit in our schedule? You know, maybe he should come back next week because I'm not ready for that yet. Are we looking forward to it? Are we dreading it? Have we done everything in service to the Lord that we would be, we'd be uh, looking forward to his return and saying to you, good well done, good and faithful servant. In Philippians 3.18 through 21, it says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that there are enemies at the cross of Christ, 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. It says here that our, our citizenship is in heaven. We are here on this earth as sojourners. We are pilgrims just passing by. We are only on this earth temporarily, and our real home isn't here, it's in heaven. And we should be eagerly waiting for the Lord. We should have our eyes focused on him. And the contrast that he says before that, the people that are, um, it says that those, the people that were, um, who set their mind on earthly things, the people of this earth set their mind on earthly things, we should be setting our mind on heavenly things. And one of the results of a Christian looking forward to his return is that, this, is that they are going to want to live holy lives. In Second uh, Peter 3, it says, it says this here. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This place isn't going to be around anymore. In the end, it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and elements will melt with fervent heats? Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When we think about the coming of Christ, it's to cause us to live holy lives. It's the, the result is that we should live lives that are holy when we think about his coming. And if you look at any passages that talk about his coming and very eagerly waiting, it usually has a reference to living your life holy before the Lord. Lastly, the last thing that Paul thinks the Corinthians for says, who will confirm you to the end, that is Jesus Christ, will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is going to confirm us to the end. What does that mean? Well, today, let me give you an illustration. Today, if, if you were to buy something, you go, you go to the store, most of us go online and shop. We go, on to, go online to Amazon or eBay, and we look for something um, from there. And then I can order it and have it delivered right to my doorstep. I don't have to go to a store. It's very convenient. But for that package to come to my house, it has to be delivered, right? And it has to be delivered. Now, today, as, as deliveries like this are getting more and more prominent, thieves have become more and more accustomed to following trucks around and becoming package thieves. They'll come and steal your packages as they get delivered and dropped off at your porch. So if I was going to buy something very expensive, if I wanted to buy something that was a really high value, really expensive, how would I ensure that that package, 
if it gets delivered from one place and over to my house, that it gets there uh, without being uh, stolen, uh, maybe getting lost or damaged along the way? How do I ensure that it gets there? Well, I could, if I wanted to, I could pay more, a little bit more for insurance. I could put insurance on the package and say that this is the amount of its worth and then if it gets lost, they would replace it. I could also guarantee that they have to take my signature when it comes to my doorstep, they get my signature so they know that I received it and not somebody else. And then I could also, um, you know, um, I guess those, just those two things here, just to make sure that it gets to me, to me in my possession. Well, if I was buying something next month, I would want to do everything in my power possible to make sure that I get that item to, uh, to the destination I want it to be at. Well, brothers and sisters, God has put a guaranteed delivery on you. God has made sure that no matter what happens, you will be taken home to heaven. God will not allow anything to happen to you along the way. We have been purchased. Christ has purchased us with his blood. You were redeemed not with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by a tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So that we were, we were bought already. We were saved by Jesus Christ. But now we need to go to our home in heaven. And he makes sure of that. It says in First Peter that we are kept by the power of God. And in John 10, 28 and 29, it says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Ephesians also talks about it. In Ephesians 1, it says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption the purchase possession to the praise of his glory. It's a wonderful promise that we are guaranteed, we are confirmed in Christ, that, that there is no way that we can be lost, stolen, or damaged like any package on earth, but Christ will guarantee it. Christ will make sure it happens. And it also says that we will be blameless, that he will confirm us to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. It's a wonderful promise that we will be blameless before him when he comes back. And it's kind of remarkable that Paul could say confidently that these believers, these Corinthian believers who are involved in sin and, and a bunch of other issues, but he looks past that and sees the believer's future, that they will be blameless before the Lord. But we tend to see people how they are now and with all their faults and their sins and their failures, but God sees the final product. And it has nothing to do with something on our part. If it was up to me, if it was up to us, we would fail miserably. If it was up to me to make sure that I was blameless before the Lord when he come back, it would, I would be a total failure to that. But it is he who is the one who declares us blameless. Are you sure that's gonna happen? How do, how do we know that's gonna happen? Because the next verse answers that for us. God is faithful. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful and will see to it that I stand blameless before the Lord. 
I can, guarantee, I can be guaranteed of it because of God's faithfulness. If it were up to me, I, I couldn't, I'd be in real trouble, but I can count on God. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, it says, there's another encouragement. It says that now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at his coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that, verse 20, 24 says, he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. He is faithful. So as we looked at the, the lives of the believers here and how Paul gave thanks for them, we're going to see in the coming weeks that the Corinthian believers have a lot of areas to work on. But let us re- be reminded that the work of God, what the, work, what the Lord has done in our lives too, that he has done things in our past, he has saved us by his grace, and he is doing things in our presence. He has given us abundant gifts and tools that we need all the resources and gifts that we need to do the work that he's called us to do. And he has guaranteed our future in heaven. He has guaranteed um, and he will call us and he will declare to us that we are blameless before him. And we will see him as uh, we will be face to face before him. Let us also as we Go about look at look at the lives of other believers, our fellow brothers and sisters, and see them as, as we are in Christ, that we are saints, that we are blameless and we are holy before God. And encourage one another, encourage one another to be more and more like Him. That that our practice would be more like our position in Christ. That we would be holy, blameless, and saintly. And our behavior today should also be influenced by what Christ is going to do to us, going to do for us in the future. As we look and eagerly wait the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would, we would, we would, um, it would influence the way that we live today. So we must use the tools that he's given us. We must exercise those gifts. What are the gifts that he has given you? What are the gifts that he has given you? Are you using them to serve him. Are you using them to serve him? And if not, how can you this week find a way to exercise those gifts as you eagerly wait his return? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the encouragement it gives us. The, the, uh, to look at the life of Paul and how, he, how thankful he was for the Corinthian believers and all the believers around him, Lord, that we could learn so much from him. We pray that we would be thankful for one another, that we would stir one another up to love and good works, Lord, that we would take the gifts that you've given us, Lord, and and use them properly, use them for your glory. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to be eagerly waiting your return, Lord, that you would come quickly, Lord. We we pray that we would live in such a way that um, we would not be ashamed at your return, Lord. We just uh, pray and ask all these things in your name. Amen.